All right, ladies and gentlemen, I know you are mad at me from yesterday cutting off the program when, when it was getting so interesting, but uh, we are back. You made it to the next uh, program the next day. Uh, fortunately for me, these are pre-recorded, so I only had to wait a couple minutes uh, to get right back into it. But I'm enjoying this conversation with Pastor Mac Woody about historicism. And I am learning more and more that um, you know there are, there are very interesting um, positions on eschatology out there, and they're all better than the uh, dispensational stuff, which is all most people are familiar with. And uh, so vi- uh, hopefully you saw yesterday's conversation. Not going to recap all that. You'll have to go back and watch it. But we ended yesterday where Pastor Woody mentioned that he believes that Revelation was written before 70 AD. And I believe that that right there is very important. If Revelation was written before 70 AD, that does change a lot, in my opinion, uh, as if it was written after 70 AD, which has been my position. Uh, Most of what I have read over the years has put it in the 90s, but I've you know recently heard some interesting arguments that I have not taken the time to like look into the historical sources and fact check yet. But um, I've I've heard some very interesting arguments that tell us it was written before 70 AD. And so um, we're going to start off talking about that. And so Pastor Woody, again, I appreciate you being on this program. I have uh, enjoyed the conversation. So tell us a little bit more about why you believe Revelation was written before 70 AD. Well, uh, the there's not a lot of information as uh, to when it was written. Uh, the only uh, thing that is written that people use to uh, try to put it into the 95 AD time frame is a statement that Irenaeus makes in regard to the emperor's name. And that that's how that it is uh, put into that. However, under further examination, because of the emperors and their family ties, a lot of them have the same names as like Caesar Augustus, you have Julius Caesar, and uh, then, then even the names itself are very similar. So it's difficult to ascertain exactly what Irenaeus, who he was referring to. And when we, that's where the date comes from, basically, of the 95 AD. There isn't anything much more than that. However, there are uh, other people that have made comments and statements about the emperors that were in the existence of the writing of the Revelation as well. So that kind of counterbalances that. And, and I think in the 95 AD is, is, uh, is chosen to help support the futurist view. That's, that's another reason for it. But in regard to the evidence, not only of historical writings, uh, which if you'll have me back on, I'll provide more information and documentation with that. But uh, you also look at the evidence in the scripture where uh, the, the age of John, how old he would have been, if he would have written it in 95 AD and he would have been a very, very old man. And, uh, but we, we, we see evidence in the scripture. Uh, the revelation doesn't talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. It only refers to it in the seals, what will happen. 
that would be chapter six. And that is the prophecy concerning what uh, Joel talked about in Joel chapter two. And it's almost the same verbatim what Peter spake of there in um, Acts two and how the tongues were a sign of their demise. And that was the purpose of tongues that the end was coming. And uh, this is what Paul refers to in Hebrews 10. He talks about if you sin willfully, uh, in uh, talking about the, the day approaching, uh, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And if you trust in the temple and the temple is destroyed, uh, you know, you, you're in trouble because uh, they perished under the law. And if you go back to that, uh, you're in a lot of trouble. So the mindset of the temple, of its destruction, uh, we see a prophesied and foretold, and that was one of the seals. And so the seals were the last or the sixth seal was a closing out. It didn't happen yet. And uh, then, of course, you have the measuring of the temple. And the measuring of the temple in, in chapter 11 is uh, it's, it's not building. It said measure the temple, the people, and the altar. And, and when you look in the scripture, it talks about the measuring of their shame. And um, I could have more. I could give you the scriptures for that. I'm just trying to find if I have it written down here. But, but another uh, passage of scripture there in Revelation uh, 1 7, it says, uh, He comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they that pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Well, he came back in, in, this is referring to the 70 AD appearance where he comes with the clouds. And, and you look in the book of, uh, in, in the scripture with Nebuchadnezzar, it, it talks about the, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar came, he came with the clouds, the dust of the clouds. And, and this is referring to the coming of the, the Romans to destroy. And John is referring to it, that he will come in the clouds. This is a, uh, behold, he cometh with the clouds. It's a futurist, or that's in the future in John's day. Hadn't happened yet. And every eye shall see him and they that pierced him. And that is the fulfillment of John chapter 19, where it says um, there, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, uh, they break not his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came out blood and water. And he saw it and bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith is true, that ye might believe, for these things were done, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him who they have pierced. So this is referring to those people that were alive in the day of Christ. They will see uh, him coming in the clouds. And this is what he's referring to the day of vengeance, the destruction of Jerusalem. So with, with understanding this verse alone, we realize that this is talking about the impending doom that's coming is the uh, abomination desolation spoken of by Daniel. So this verse alone helps uh, verify that Jerusalem had not yet been destroyed when John wrote this. That That's just an example. Okay. So, yeah, so in um, Josephus, I think Josephus wrote about it. I think Tacitus wrote about it. Right. Um, that around the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, there were seen like chariots in the sky uh, that were like going mm -hmm. around. And um, there's multiple accounts of that. That, you know, it was one of those things that I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but it was one of those things that had not so many people seen it. People wouldn't have believed it happened. So you believe that that was the fulfillment of the behold, he cometh with clouds, that that was a coming in judgment, but not the coming that Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
Exactly. Okay. Yeah, this is the uh, he. This is the, this is the uh, this is where you look at the appearing when you read in Matthew twenty four the word appearing of the Son of Man. This isn't his coming; it's his appearing. That uh, w- what uh, what that's referring to, and you look up the word. You have uh, the the word appearing is like well, it appears to me. It's the realization that when because you have to look at the scripture and the Jews knew understood the prophecy. All right. I think of seven things that have to remain in order for the Messiah to come. All right? Number one, Judah shall not, there in Genesis 49, it said uh, that uh, Judah, Judah the, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come, which is the coming of the Messiah. So Judah has to remain a national prominence. Well, that was gone when they were destroyed. Mm-hmm. The temple must remain because remember what uh, the scripture says in the book of Amos that this latter temple will be greater than the former because the Messiah will come into it. Well, the temple had to remain standing. And uh, and so the Jews had to remain a national prominence. The temple had to remain. And uh, and I think a two there. And so when they see their city burned, when they see their temple gone, they realize that Judah no longer is in national prominence. Either the scriptures failed or it was fulfilled. And this is where, when they see the desolation happen, they realize that this indeed is the judgment that he spake of, and this is the coming judgment of the Son of Man. That's what the word appearing means. It means to realize and understand, like it appears to me, a light comes on. And that's what that's referring to in Matthew 24. And uh, so, uh, yes, uh, so understanding about when the revelation was written, well, that's an example of that verse, every eye shall see him and they that pierced him. I didn't pierce them. You didn't pierce them, but they did. Mm-hmm. And they will see him. And that's the context that he's speaking of here. Okay. So not the glorious appearing though. No, it says they that pierced him. Right. Okay. No, this is the, yeah, this is the, um, uh, this is the, the wrath and they, mm-hmm. they cry out, you know, uh, in agony and they'll, oh boy, hide us from the face of him. Right. That's what it referring to. Because something that's you know, interesting too, one of the biggest verses that pre-tribbers use that any and pre-rathers use as well is the passage about how we've not been appointed under wrath. But what's interesting, if you look at the context of those passages, it's been talking about wrath coming on the Jews, which to me, that happened in 70 AD. And so... Um, you know, we kind of use that to get us out before the events of a future Daniel 70th week. But at the same time, too, it's like, no, that was about that wrath that it was talking about was something that in reality already came on the Jews. Because in Thessalonians, you know, Paul's dealing with, you know, he's talking to the church of Thessalonica, who was under heavy persecution of the Jews during that time. And he's letting them know, you know, that, you know, they're going to get what's coming to them. So... Um, do you believe that the Israel of today has any prophetic, you know, use, uh, future? Are you expecting any, are you expecting a big revival amongst the Jewish people? Uh, do they, do they play any role? I believe they do. Um, now we have, you know, in the futures view, they use 1948, Israel becomes a nation that becomes the start date of a lot of uh, prophecy. This nation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. And they quote that. And I used to preach and teach that as well. Well, we say, well, how long is a generation? We say now 40 years. And 
12, 88, 1988, there's 88 reasons why Christ will come in 88. You know, so I remember that little booklet that was sent around the country. Uh, so, you know, people are trying to tie the prophecy to uh, the state of Israel, which I understand and I, and I realize that. But when we look at the Jew and the purpose of them, God hath not cast them off. Now there's a remnant, according to the election of grace, there's a remnant of the Jews that'll, that believe, have believed, Paul said, as in the day of Elijah, even as his day, as today, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. The book of Romans talks about this. And um, they're, the purpose of the Jew, now keep in mind, as the sun rises from the east and settles in the west, the sun is passing over the United States, her purpose in time, and I believe now the sun is rising upon the Orient once again. Hmm. And with that, this is where things are going to close out. And we're seeing the alliance with uh, China, Russia, and, uh, and Israel is going to be a factor in the end. So we, we see the reason why God has brought the Jew back to the land. He said, it is not for your sake that I do this, O Israel, but for my name's sake. So he's not bringing them back there because they're Jews. He's bringing them back there to vindicate his name that they blasphemed among the nations as they were held captive and were dispersed throughout the whole world. He's going to bring them back there. Uh, for that reason, then he's going to use that to anger the nations and that the nations will gather together in the Valley of Megiddo against them. And then he is going to save the remnant upon his return. And you read that in Zechariah 14. So the Jew, they do have a part to play. And there is a remnant. And uh, you see, I believe we see those two witnesses there in Revelation 11 and in the latter day. I think one of them witnesses represent the Jewish uh the Jewish affiliation of the New Testament economy, along with the Gentile, because these are the two olive trees that the Bible talks about, Zechariah, as well as there in chapter 11. These are the olive trees. So we're grafted into their uh, promised economy of the New Testament. And then we have it stated that God is able to graft them in again. So I believe we will see a Revival, if you want to call it that, among Jews coming to the saving knowledge of Christ, that he indeed was the Messiah. And uh, so I believe the Jew, they do have a part to play in the end times. Okay. All right. So um, kind of maybe backtracking a little bit because I, I was wanting to get to this and kind of skipped over it. But whenever um, you, know, you reference some of the... Um, events like the trumpets and vials. And I agree that I believe they're simultaneous, um, that they're kind of the same thing just at, a, at another angle. I totally agree with that. But um, when those events, you know, like say when the second trumpet was going on, is there any evidence historically that people recognize they were in that particular time in history or is this something that people mainly look back on and understand? Because I, I understand you had said before, looking into the future is difficult, and I can understand you know the reasons for that. Looking in the past is easier, but in the present situation, did churches recognize what they were going through, or do we mainly just look back and see it? Well, uh you know, the, the, the saints of the past were not as blessed as we are as having the word of God readily, readily available. You know, many of them, you know, 
this is what brought the revelation to light more so was when the scriptures were printed and then you know people started reading and this is what really escalated uh the rebellion against the papacy of rome even of her daughters you know mm-hmm. so their understanding of a lot of things uh, i mean when they hear the scriptures uh they how often did they hear them were they available um so their understanding they were living through things um so we can't really compare it them to us as we look back and have the scriptures in our hand and we can see what happened historically i think they were in a mode of survival but some did have the knowledge of it as well i don't want to diminish that fact as well but Mm -hmm. so um you know depending on even now we try to figure out what are the the trumpets and and this varies among the historist view uh where you have like one of the trumpets uh would be the rise of the ottoman empire as in chapter nine of revelation the scorpions that come out of the earth and uh, i mean the bible gives indication of that let me just give you an yeah. example i was going to ask you specifically about that one i'm glad you're bringing that up because that's uh, that's one that i you know everybody's interested in so i i wanted to know what your opinion was on that Okay, this is why it's important to understand history. So keep in mind the image that comes or the beast that comes out of the sea pertains to Europe. It doesn't pertain to the United States. It pertains to Europe. But the son of prophecy will go from east to west. It will include the United States and all nations of the world, as uh, we see when the beast comes up out of the earth itself. But but when we look in chapter 9, as uh, we read about the Ottoman Empire, these uh the air was darkened now we have to look at the poetical prophecy here the air being darkened uh, this is the inability to see uh, spiritual truths correctly uh, but but here um, let me just read it where it talks about um and the fifth angel sounded and i saw a star fall from heaven under the earth and him was given the key of the bottomless pit and he opened the bottomless pit and there arose smoke out of the pit, the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. So this is the obscurity of doctrine. So we're going to, like with the Ottomans, you know, you have the Shuni and the Shiites. Uh, the difference between them two, basically, one believes in the. Uh, let me just give you a correct explanation of that. And this has to do with the the Sunnis. They uh, branch. They believe that Muhammad's successor should be chosen, and the Shia. Uh, the Shiites, uh, they believe that Muhammad's uh, successor would be from the bloodline. They pretty much are in Iraq, uh, the Iraqis, but this is all part of the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire expanded, it grew and uh, under Muhammad. And uh, the, when you read in the scripture, it talks about these people that have the hair of a woman. And these are called the Hegarians. And the scripture uses the Hegarians or the uh, Sabians and uh, Rome, they talk about warring with these people. These are the descendants of Hagar, and they had the long hair as a woman, as a sign of rebellion and identity. But uh, it says in verse 4, and it it was commanded them uh, that they should not hurt the grass, neither the earth, nor any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their forehead. So the seal of God, remember the Jew. Now, John is a Jew, and uh, and so he's he's reflecting on Jewish thinking. Remember the uh, the phylactery that would be between on the forehead, between the eyes, and the and they would have a strap that would go down to the hand, and they this would be worn during the time of prayer. 
Uh, this is the seal of God. In other words, the doctrine of God I know in whom I have believed. And so this is when Muhammad, when he was spreading through, um, uh, you know, the European campaigns and dominating the world there in Constantinople and, and how the war of the Roman Empire against the uh, Muslims. And uh, so the seal of God in their forehead, convert or die. And uh, interesting enough, Muhammad, uh, he met a, a monk who was an airing of his belief system. And, and this is where Muhammad, uh, they don't believe in the divinity of Christ, that he was a prophet, but he got it from the Aryan uh, thinking that was prevalent in that time. But then he, he talks about now in verse six and uh, says, and in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it. And uh, verse seven, and the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. And on their heads were those crowns like gold. This refers to domination of kingdoms. And their faces were like the face of a man. They had the hair, the hair of a woman, and their teeth were the teeth of lions. Now, let me give you a little bit here. Their teeth, Joel 1, 6, you could go to Isaiah 9, 15. It talks about uh, in verse 5, and to them was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months, and their torment was the to uh, torment of a scorpion that striketh a man. So look, if you will, in uh, Isaiah 9, 15, as concerning the tale. So this is uh, referring to Muhammad and the false prophet, and uh, the stinger is in the tale. Isaiah, let's see, Isaiah 9, and I'm going to read verse 15. It says here, the ancient and the honorable, he is the head, and the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tale. So this is, a again, poetical prophecy referring to the Ottoman Empire that was to come. And it did come. And uh, so this would be this uh, fifth angel that sounded and referring to the Ottoman Empire. Joel chapter 1, verse 6 talks about the teeth of a lion. And uh, so we can we can ascertain and, and put these things together. And again, no one's an expert in prophecy, but I do know the, the uh, futurist view is, is, uh, is based on a faulty premise and is based on five proof texts that are a premise oriented. There's nothing in the scripture that indicates the rebuilding of a temple and if Christ is the one that makes the covenant with Israel in Daniel 9, they're calling him the Antichrist, when in, in reality he is Christ that makes his covenant. And that's based on the antecedent, where it talks about he will make a covenant. That word he is referring to the single masculine pronoun, and that is the Messiah. The people of the prince is not the, uh, the antecedent because it's a conjunction and a prepositional phrase, I should say. And the antecedent is the Messiah, but they call him the Antichrist. So when we look at the prophecy as one of these seals, I can see here as an example, this could be the fulfillment of the Ottoman Empire and how they're now, after World War II, they chose wrong sides twice, and now they're reduced down to, the, uh, to, to Turkey. That is the, the end of the Ottoman Empire as it was. And so they, they cease to exist as they so were. That's really interesting. And I agree with you about Daniel's 70th week being something that happened uh, already. But in Revelation, uh, we do see some references to uh, three and a half year periods. So, uh, you know, what do you believe about those in relation to Daniel's 70th week? Uh, 
we have the, uh, if you're referring to the last week of Daniel, the seventh week is divided into two. And there's a reason why it's divided into two, as I understand it. But you have three and a half. That was the beginning of Christ's ministry. And the ending of it, the ending of it when he made the second covenant, which is the New Testament, that was concluded when he died on the cross. And that's where in Daniel 9, it talks about he'll be cut off. And, um, and that's when he made the covenant. Now, the covenant was made, but it's also still being confirmed. Now, he confirmed it with the whole house of Israel. When you read Jeremiah 31, he didn't confirm it with the Gentile world. He confirmed it with the house of Israel, period. And so when he confirmed it with them, he did it in the beginning when John in chapter, uh, John the Baptist in Mark chapter one, that's when the gospel began. The church started back in the time of Christ. It started Pentecost. That's another um, uh, uh, futurist concept that supports that idea. But the, the ministry of Christ, the church was started there on the banks of the Jordan River. They were baptized into that nucleus of believers and uh, Christ taught them he had his church with him and uh, it only existed there at that time with him and his in their presence so John began to preach the gospel as it says there in Mark chapter 1 the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ we know there's one Lord one faith one baptism one God one father there's one gospel Paul said if any man preach any other gospel let him be accursed so Mark is when the the uh, gospel was preached and it, it states it that in uh, Mark chapter one, let me just read it here. This is why we hold to the baptism of John. And that's important because uh, we're talking about there was only one man sent from God who baptized and had that authority and that was John. And that's who baptized Christ. And if I'm baptized with Christ, I need to be baptized into that death, into that baptism that he had. And that's where there's one baptism. And that's what the scriptures refer to, the authority of that baptism. And uh, but he said the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in the prophets, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. So this is the coming of Elijah. Now, to your question on the first three and a half years, I'm going to go to Malachi chapter four. Now, I'm going to read this. And this is important to understand. So John, before the great notable day, John began to preach uh, the gospel. There was a man sent from God, it was John. So, but notice what the book of Malachi says. He said, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great dreadful day of the Lord. So what is the great dreadful day? The destruction of Jerusalem. Moses predicted their destruction almost to the exact description of how they would be destroyed. But this is the great and notable day of the Lord referring to their destruction. And the Bible says God will send Elijah not in a reincarnation sense, but one who would come in the spirit of Elijah, in the dress of Elijah, in the diet of Elijah, in the personality of Elijah, and the living conditions of Elijah. So this man, John the Baptist, is the fulfillment of the coming of Elijah before the great notable day. So the great notable day would happen in 70 AD, but the first three and a half years is when that covenant was made and that is when in daniel 9 in the midst of the week what week well let's go back to daniel 9 so this is the midst of the week here 
In Daniel 9, he talks about in the midst of the week, he will confirm a covenant with them. So the midst of the week, what week we're referring to, it has to be the uh, 70th week. So um, I want to read verse, uh, let's see, 26. He said, and after three score and two weeks, which is 62 plus seven, that's 69. So after that, shall Messiah be cut off and not for himself. And the people of the prince, this is the Romans, shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. That's the flood he talked about, comparing it with uh, Noah there in Matthew 24. It came as a flood. They were eating and drinking. And then the flood came and took them away. Well, the coming of the Romans is like that. They, they looked up and lo and behold, they're surrounded. The dust clouds come and they're just, they're, they're taken by surprise. And uh, it says in verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice, the oblation to cease. So he will, he will confirm the covenant with many for one week. So what week is this? Well, this is the 70th week. And he will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, which is the temple sacrifice. There's no need for it because Christ is the lamb. For the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate, even in, uh, until the, uh, the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So in the middle of this uh, three and a half years, Christ makes that covenant with the people of Israel. Now, the futures say that's the Antichrist making a covenant with the Jew and they're building the temple and all of that. The scriptures support that. And uh, now they'll give you the five proof texts and we can deal with that. They're all based on a premise, not fact. But now the next three and a half years, when is that fulfilled? Well, let's go to Matthew uh, 24. And uh, this is all dealing with uh, the context when he said, when they said to the Lord, Look at the beautiful temple. He said, this will all be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. And they ask him three questions. When will these things be? When will be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? So they ask those three questions and the Lord answered those three questions in that order. But now when he was uh, talking to them uh, about the signs that will come before the last few and a half years. So this is what we're dealing with in uh, Matthew 24 is the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. It's not talking about the full seven years. He's dealing with the last three and a half years. Because he says this, uh, when you therefore, let me, let's see here. I'm sorry. Let's go to, um, um, well, let's start in verse seven. For nations shall rise against nation. Now, historically, we see this. this we, we're looking at the Jewish wars in 66 AD. When you read about the Jewish wars, between that and the conclusion of 70 AD, over 1 million people died. 95,000 were taken as slaves. This was a catastrophic war. This was a catastrophic time concerning Israel and what happened to them. And uh, he said there'll be famines and pestilences. Well, we see that with Agabus, the, uh, the famine that came in the years of Claudius. And uh, the Roman emperor and the earthquakes, uh, well, they had many earthquakes in that time. And then it says down in verse um, 13, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now we have to say, well, what does that mean? What is the end? Well, the end is the conclusion of the last three and a half years. 
But he says now in verse uh, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world. Now that word world is not cosmos, but it's the Roman empires, what the world, Kamoine, uh, uh, or if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's referring to the Roman world there surrounding the Mediterranean Sea and up into England. This is the Roman world. That's what it's referring to. And this is where all the Jews have been dispersed. So they're all scattered. And this gospel now must be confirmed with all nations. He said to the whole house of Israel, not just Judah. That's all it was basically there in Jerusalem was Judah. But Jews are scattered through the whole world. And so this gospel now must be confirmed to them because when you read, uh, well, let me just read it, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31. When he says here, um, let's see here, Jeremiah 31, 31. He says this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not just the tribe of Judah. So it's made with the house of Israel. So this covenant is made. Now there's Jews scattered through the whole world that have not heard about the coming of the Messiah, have not heard about his death. And so this covenant now, the New Testament covenant must be confirmed to them. And so when Jesus said back in Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, what is the end? The end is the uh, the last three and a half years. So the Lord, between the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years, there's like a pause of 34 years to allow the gospel to reach the known world that Paul spake of in, in Romans 10, where he said the gospel indeed has gone through the whole world, the Roman Empire, and went to the Jew first, and they proclaimed this covenant and they rejected it and then hence will go to the gentile so the gentiles now are grafted into this and this becomes uh dominated eventually by the gentiles uh so the jews are the minority as they were the majority in the beginning but now they're the minority in the in this covenant and so this covenant rests within the new testament churches and so so you have this three and a half years and there is the, the reason why the the last week is divided in half is for that reason that the confirmation of this covenant can be told to the Jew scattered through the whole world. So it took that long for the whole world and all the nations of the Roman Empire to hear the gospel to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. So that is why in 66 AD is when that began the end where the abomination desolation would be poured upon the desolate. That's when the uh, nation of Israel, the Old Testament economy would end. The sun would be dark and the light of Israel gone out. The moon will not give her light, no more uh, Passover, no more feast of unleavened bread, no more feast of Pentecost, no more feast of first fruits, it is done. No more priests, no more ephod, it is over. And the Old Testament economy is gone. Read Hebrews chapter eight. It said it ready to vanish away, and it did vanish away when Paul wrote that, after he wrote that, I should say. So when it comes to all these things you're bringing up, it is, it is it's very fascinating. Um, it kind of makes your head explode uh, just trying to process all of this because there are so many things that we all kind of have some preconceived ideas about, and assuming you're right on many of these things that you mentioned, it causes you to have to rethink a lot of different things. So... Um, do you have any books or uh, that you would recommend to explain a lot of the historicist position? Uh, do you have 
any specific uh, material yourself that you could recommend uh, for people who want to know more about your position? Uh, yeah, I have uh, I have quite a few things that I've written, which is not mine. It's a compilation of things I've studied over time. Uh, there there are books. Uh, I don't know if there's one solid. I'm sure there bo there's books out there. I'm just trying to rack my brain on which one I could recommend that would answer the questions. But not everyone agrees 100% of everything. But one thing I do would say is, you know, we have to look at precedents, even in case law, you know, there's a precedence that is looked at. And, and what, what is frustrating is when there's a, a court case and it's voted, it's uh, ruled on, not based on precedent, but somebody's opinion. And we see that in scripture and prophecy, where you look at, is there any historical evidence of the future's view? And when you begin to study the future's view, when you break it down, you will find that the, the future's view really got a lot of steam and beginning with Edward Irving, who was a Scottish uh, Protestant, and he's the founder of, now he was in the 1830s in that time frame, but he was the founder of the Holy Apostolic uh, Roman Church. And he believed that before Christ returns, that there must be the uh, the giving of the gifts, as in what Joel talked about in the last days. So what everyone has done, they've taken the last days, which was for the Jew, and they put it their last days. And this is where the charismatic groups come from and the tongue speakers and the healing. In other words, before Christ returns, there must be the reinitiation of these gifts. And along with that, his prophecy views. Uh, also is reliving the what the rebuilding of the temple. So everything is kind of taken out of sequence. You know, it's a, it's a chunk carved out that's put in 2000 in the future. And then you have Darby, which is a contemporary of Edward Irving. He was in Ireland and of course he did the same thing. And then you had the, uh, the movement that in, I believe it was uh, 18, let's see here, it was 1844. This is called the great disappointment when Christ was to return. This was uh, from the Millerites, and uh, and Christ, of course, didn't return. And then there was uh, Jonas uh, Wendell. I think he was in uh, 1815, 1874. He recalculated the return of Christ, and from that uh, we find that uh, you had the Jehovah Witnesses, you had the Seventh Day Adventists, you have all these prophecy-oriented organizations uh, begin, and uh, and so. A lot of the views, the prophetic views, these have infected a lot of the Baptist churches that were of a historic origin in the beginning. So you never had this uh, 300 years ago. Uh, th this didn't exist. It was all the historic view. And so you see, um, you know, the, the preterist view. You had uh, the two Catholic Jesuits, uh, you know, that started these two different ideologies to protect the papacy of Rome. But reality, the, uh, the view that if people would just, just think a little bit, not get all upset, but just stop and, and examine, look, look at your history. You'll find these did not ex exist. And anytime there's anger, anger is always a threat to preservation. That's why we get angry. And so when you challenge someone, well, not challenge, but you say something and they feel threatened by it, well, 
meaning that I, I'm not going to allow this to box me into a corner because then I'll be wrong. They get mad, then they call you names, and then they start raising their voice at you. And, and the, But that's all a product of fear. And God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. I know in whom I have believed the scriptures bear it out. And, and I'll be glad to sit with anybody. If, if they won't get hostile, I'll be glad to explain, answer any question I possibly can and use the word of God to do it. And, and I know they'll use the Bible as well. And we appreciate that. But, um, you know, so it's uh, looking at history. When did all Darby, this is basically what it is. Then you have Schofield, his notes are Darby's notes. And this Bi this Bible was pushed big time by uh, Baptist preachers. And then you have the split of Baptists with the Wisset theology of the 1880s. Uh, and that's what split Baptists back in that time when you understand the history of it. The Wisset uh, believing that Baptists came out of the Protestant Reformation, the 1641 theory. And then you have uh, the old time Baptists that held to it. And then from the Wisset people, also you have the, in the 1890s where the uh, fundamentalist movement began with the Protestants. And that's where the Christian flag comes from. And that's flying in Baptist churches all around the country. In reality, you're aligning yourself with Protestant doctrine. And one thing they leave out of their fundamentals, their five fundamentals, whether it be the, they have uh, the inerrancy of scripture, they believe, we believe that. We believe in the resurrection of Christ. They believe it, we believe it. We don't argue on that. They believe in his resurrection, his deity. But one thing is missing is baptism. That's one thing that uh, separates and caused the death of so many people was the scriptural baptism uh, that, that came from John. And that's what makes a true New Testament church uh, I'm not talking family of God now. I'm just talking the institution of a true New Testament church is that that doctrine of baptism. And so so with that missing, one thing then we're unified all by a mystical spirit baptism. And then we all hold to the same prophetic doctrine as well. So in reality, a lot of our Baptists have really migrated into a Protestant mindset. And uh, and so we are of this uh, futurist view. And, and that's what we we find this uh, I, this corruption, this doctrinal corruption creeping in, and I was infected by it. And uh, thank the Lord, I saw the the truth and began to examine it and found my way out of it. And uh, so, but anyway, I'm probably rambling. Oh, no, on without here. a doubt, I know we anyway. can go on and on talking for hours about this subject. Uh, there's so many interesting things to unpack there. And, you know, unfortunately, people's heads just kind of explode whenever they hear something that they're not used to hearing, uh, something that doesn't go along with whatever their uh, party line talking points are. And I think we ought to be able to have discussions about these type of things. And I appreciate you coming on here, discussing these things with me. Um, do you have any uh, final thoughts, uh, closing remarks for our audience? Yes. Uh, even if a person doesn't agree and they're mad at me or. If they're a believer in Christ, washed in the blood, they're a brother, and I, I love them as such. So I have no animosity towards anybody. Uh, they may not agree. That's fine. Um, but, you know, you're my brother, and uh, and I appreciate that. So there's no hostility on, on this end. If there, if there is, may God forgive me. But it's just um, speaking the truth. And so I'm, I do not desire to be an enemy of any person uh, it, that— uh, in the in the brotherhood of Christ, but uh, 
there's always room for instruction and correction in righteousness and uh, in doctrine being thoroughly furnished in all good works. So we have to understand the scripture mandates that would be thoroughly furnished in doctrine. And so if you ever have me back, it'd be an honor. And if they write you questions, I'll try to answer them and uh, use the scripture and try to back it up with historical references if, if it could be. And so never uh, neglect or minimize the importance of, of history because without history, um, where you're from, you don't know where you're going. And so history is very, very important to us. And uh, so it's historical. Well, again, I appreciate you coming on. This was a very fascinating conversation. Uh, really interesting. A lot of things to chew on, a lot of things to think about. And so I do. I appreciate you being willing to, to do this. And those of you who are watching, um, go ahead, uh, leave comments, give me any questions or anything that you might have. And you know what? We'll plan on having a follow-up conversation in the future. Uh, there's a lot that was discussed that I need to chew on that uh, I need to think about. And so I, want, I would love to hear your thoughts uh, and what you thought about this interview. Let's be nice. Okay, I know your heads are exploding right now. I told you I will allow other perspectives on here uh, when it comes to the subject of end times. None of us are experts. We don't know everything. So uh, let's be polite. Don't make me look bad. Don't make me look like I have an audience full of foaming at the mouth nut jobs. I appreciate Pastor Woody coming on here and doing this with me. So I appreciate all of you watching. And I do. I look forward to hearing any constructive feedback that you might have. So thank you all for watching and we will see you all next time. God bless.